verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Marva Dawn and Eugene Peterson comment that Ascension Day, which is the day that Jesus ascended into heaven after he had risen from the dead, they comment that Ascension Day is beautiful and primarily because the, the world can't steal it. And they go on to talk about how Christmas and Easter has really been taken over by the world, and in many ways it's turned into a, a thing of consumerism. And, and uh, she reflects on when she was a teenager, and she played the clarinet in the high school band, and she was playing in the band in the town Christmas parade, and towards the end of the parade, you know, Santa Claus came in on a helicopter, you know, to land. And she said years later, they started doing the same thing with the Easter Bunny. She makes this comment that the world doesn't have the foggiest notion of what to do with someone flying out, of Jesus disappearing. Like that's, that's what the ascension was. And I would say that I don't know that the church has much of the foggiest notion what to do with Jesus' ascension. It gets very much lost. Uh, in the picture of the importance of it. And what's the significance of Jesus' ascension? What does it mean? What does the ascension of Jesus produce in the life of his followers? That's what we're going to answer. First, Jesus' ascension produces a new community. This book of Acts picks up where the gospel of Luke ends. In fact, both Luke and Acts were written by the same author, that is Luke. And so oftentimes Luke and Acts are spoken of as one book. In verse one, when Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, that I wrote, he's speaking of the gospel of Luke, which describes Jesus' life and his ministry up to his resurrection and even to his ascension. And we see in verse three here, there's a focus on 
what Jesus did and the focus of what he was accomplishing after he rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven. Verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus reveals here his mission, his primary goal in those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And that was that his goal was to present himself alive by many proofs. Now, what, what were the proofs? Well, there was the proof of him appearing to Thomas, who was the disciple that doubted that he had risen from the dead. And he comes to Thomas and he holds out his hand and says, see the scars? And he takes Thomas's hand and he puts it on his side where the spear had pierced Jesus on the cross. Then you have the proof where he sits down with his followers and he eats fish. It's a very odd detail, but it's very meaningful because Jesus was convincing them that he wasn't a ghost, that he wasn't a hologram of sorts, that he was a real human being in his glorified body fully human, fully God. Now, why does Jesus go to such lengths in those 40 days where he would appear and then disappear and appear and disappear and appear and disappear every time he was presenting himself alive? Why did he go to such great lengths to present himself alive? The answer to this is actually at the heart of Christianity. Jesus didn't appear and give his followers a, a three-ring binder of philosophy for how to live in the world. He didn't appear and give them a three-ring binder of, of information or, or a set of principles on how to lead or, and how to guide people in the world. No, he appeared over and over to convince them that he was alive. And this actually distinguishes Christianity from many of the world religions. Many of the religions in our world can continue to function apart from their founder. And that's not true with Christianity. If you reduce Christianity to a set of principles or even just to a set of ethical standards to live by, it completely falls apart. Because it's vitally linked to Jesus, not only who died, but Jesus who ascended and is alive today. Think about the disciples. When Jesus died, what did they do? They scattered. They totally scattered. They ran into isolation. Because the reason for their gathering for three years was Jesus. That was the reason they gathered. It's the reason they, they left their vocations was to be with Jesus. And now that he was gone, when he died, there was no reason to gather. They would have never come back together for a philosophy. They would have never come back together for just a, a new set of principles to live by. They came back together 
because the Christ that they had come to know and follow and love was alive again. That's what brought them back together. On September 11th, 2001, that was the, the tragic date when the airplanes flew into the World Trade Centers in New York City, causing both of them to topple down, killing thousands. I think it was about 3,000 or so people. On that day, flight 929 from London to Chicago was arriving towards the North American coast, towards the coast of the United States. And the pilot announced to the passengers, there's a national emergency we have to land in Newfoundland. And so that crew of what was about 200 passengers landed in Newfoundland. They spend the next 20 hours on the runway in the plane. And then they would spend the next four days together in Newfoundland until they finally were able to return back. The uh, Chicago Tribune described who was on this flight. On board were families, friends, a couple just got married, a few others heading to weddings, another returning from a funeral, and others returning from vacation or business trips. In other words, this was a, 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 a flight full of very different people in very different seasons of life, and yet their bond was forged through a, a tragic historical event. In fact, just a little less than a year later, in June of 2002, they had a reunion where they gathered again. And one of the passengers that was on the flight who attended this reunion said, we went through something with these people that no one understands. Their bond was forged by a tragic historical event. When we gather on Sunday mornings, a reunion of sorts weekly, we do not gather because we have the same political views. We don't gather because we have the same vaccination views. We don't gather because we have the same schooling perspective and schooling preferences for our children. We don't gather because we have the same hobbies. We don't gather because we share the same ethnicity. We don't even gather because we ultimately share the same ethical standards, though we believe God's design for life revealed in his word and we cling to it. No, we gather because we experience, share the same experience by faith. And that is the historical event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. That's why we gather. That's who we gather around. Jesus is present in this worship service in an unseen realm called heaven. It's not just some physical place way up there. It's the unseen realm. He is here by his Holy Spirit. When we gather, that's why we gather around him. And we don't just gather on Sundays, but we gather in what you just heard, community groups, smaller groups of eight to 12 adults plus kids where we can be known intimately. And when we gather in community groups, we don't just gather to 
talk about a curriculum or we gather because we gather around the person of Jesus. I would encourage you this fall to get into a community group to experience what it's like, not just on Sunday mornings to gather around the person of Jesus, but in someone's home to gather around the person of Jesus and to experience his transforming power, him being present and transforming us through his Holy Spirit. Eugene Peterson says it well. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. The ascension of Jesus Christ, the fact that he ascended into an unseen realm but is alive today, produces a new community. Just as the disciples got excited when they realized Jesus was alive and they came out of hiding and they gathered again in excitement, we do the same. Nearly 2,000 years later, we gather in excitement around Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the ascension of Christ produces a new community. Second, it produces a new power, a new power. Verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their hopes had been dashed when he died. Now that he was alive again, their hopes were renewed and kindled. Now, why were their hopes rekindled? Well, the question that they asked gets at it. In those days, the land of Israel, which was the land that God had promised to his people when he took them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, across the Jordan, into the promised land. That was the land of Israel. In Jesus' day, it was occupied by the Romans. And so the disciples thought that the Messiah Christ was coming to expel the Romans and to set up David's earthly kingdom and that they were gonna be the, the governors and the, the, the leaders and the executives in this, in this kingdom. And we know this, even if you go back to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, when you have the mother of James and John who <laughs> says this to Jesus, say that these two sons of mine, this is a tiger mom, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. They thought that there was gonna be this earthly kingdom, that Israel was gonna be restored and that they were gonna be in charge. Their hopes were set on a political power. Their hopes were set on a political power and they believed that the kingdom of God was gonna be established by this earthly political power. Jesus answers their question and points them to a very different power and a far greater power. Look what he says to him in verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Jesus corrects two misunderstandings in this verse. First, he corrects their misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was not reserved for just Israel to be this earthly kingdom. No, Jesus was speaking of a spiritual kingdom that men and women and children from every nation could enter through faith and repentance. It was a spiritual kingdom, an invisible kingdom that is still a spiritual and invisible kingdom today that becomes visible when people and communities bow the knee to Jesus and worship Jesus and worship God. The kingdom is present wherever people are submitting to and worshiping God through Christ. It's a spiritual kingdom. One day it'll become a very material kingdom when Jesus returns and sin is gone forever. Second misunderstanding that Jesus corrects is that of power, right? They had this idea of earthly political power and Jesus was telling them of a heavenly power. Now this correction of power that he gives them really answers the question, how is the kingdom of God established on earth? Right? How is the kingdom of God established on earth? It's not by political power. It's not even by law. It's not by getting Christians into high places of power in government. Although that's not wrong. There's a place for political and legal expression of the Christian world and life view. There's a place for Christians to be involved in all kinds of vocations and places, including the government. But that's not what establishes the kingdom. That's not what establishes the kingdom, nor a, a vision of society based on God's word that's just forced upon the world. It, moral reform or ethical reform or the world being made right, as we know it's incredibly sinful and broken and wrong, right? Moral reform never, never comes through political power or any kind of power tactic. Only the Holy Spirit coming upon a man or a woman or a child can change that person into a follower of Jesus Christ. That's where the reform begins. And that leads to the second question. That's how, heavenly power, not political power, but second is through what is the kingdom of God established on earth? It's God's power, his heavenly power, but through whom? Luke says, as he records Jesus here, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. That's how the kingdom is gonna be established, through witnesses. Not earthly power players. In fact, Jesus' disciples were not earthly power players. They, they, weren't, they didn't have positions in the Roman Empire. They, they were not power players and Jesus was saying, you don't have to become power players for my kingdom to be established. You just need to be witnesses, simply witnesses. I love how John Stott puts it. He says, the kingdom of God is spread by witnesses, not soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit, not by the force of arms or political intrigue or revolutionary violence. 
So if God's kingdom is established through witnesses, what is a witness? What is a witness? Well, the word for witness is martus. It's where we get the word martyr. A martyr is someone who dies for their faith. All but one of Jesus' disciples ended up dying a martyr's death. Now, how does this help us understand what the word witness means? Well, witness is a noun, not a verb, which means that it's not something you do. It's who you are. It's an identity. And out of that identity flows things you do and things you say. But a witness is an identity. You know, in a courtroom setting, a witness is someone that stands up and gives testimony, testifies to what she saw. And a good faithful witness tells what she saw and doesn't back down because of threats of punishment or, or, a, or a reward, a bribery of reward. Or She tells what she saw accurately. That's what a witness is. And so this helps us understand the word martyr. Right? The disciples, all of them but one, were so committed to faithfully testifying by their actions, by their words, by their lives, by their identity, so faithfully committed to testifying to the risen and ascended Christ that they were willing to testify even if it cost them their lives. And they did. They testified to Christ, even if it meant them dying. So a witness is a life, a life that is committed to testifying to the risen and ascended Christ, no matter what, no matter what it costs. That's what it means to be a faithful witness. If testifying to Christ means losing income, then so be it. Right? If testifying to Christ means losing relationships, then so be it. If testifying to Christ means losing comfort, then so be it. If testifying to Christ means losing prestige or power, then so be it. Does your life, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way that you treat people, right? the, the way that you approach death, the way that you work, does your life faithfully testify to a Christ who has risen and ascended and alive today. Francis Collins was a medical student when he found himself as a medical student moving from being an agnostic, which an agnostic is someone who believes there's a God but not knowable. He was moving from being an agnostic to an atheist, believing there's no God at all. He said this, Dr. Collins said this, I would have challenged anybody who wanted to have some discussion about God. I would have asserted they were basically stuck in some past era of supernaturalism that is no longer necessary because science has eliminated the need for it. Then he became a, 
in his third year as a medical student, he began to sit at the bedside of patients whom the physicians could no longer help. And it was in those bedside encounters that he said this. Watching those individuals at the end of their lives, I was trying to imagine what I would do in that circumstance. Many of these people were deeply committed to faith. I was unsettled to see how they approached the end of life. This was something I personally was pretty terrified about. They had peace and even a sort of sense of joyfulness that there was something beyond. It made me realize that I had never really gone beyond the most superficial consideration of whether God exists or a serious consideration about what happens after you die. And then Collins goes on to describe this one patient that he, he had become actually very endeared to and very connected with. And he said this, she suffered from advanced cardiac disease, which included episodes of daily crushing chest pain. And yet she came through this all with remarkable peace and was very comfortable sharing the reason for that with me, namely her faith in Jesus. And at age 27, Dr. Francis Collins finally put his trust and his faith in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a witness, to simply testifying to the resurrected and ascended Christ by a life that was facing death. And to see the Holy Spirit, who had come upon this woman, who had trusted Jesus, to see the Holy Spirit powerfully working through simply her witness and her testimony to bring this man to faith in Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus produces a new community and it produces a new power in and through you as a witness. And finally, what does the ascension of Jesus produce? A new purpose. Verse nine. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Into verse 11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This ascension account of Jesus has parallels to 2 Kings chapter 2, where we see Elijah, the prophet, who is taken up into heaven. And as Elijah, the prophet, is taken up into heaven, it says that a double portion of his spirit was given to his successor, Elijah, so that Elijah could continue his work on earth. The same thing is happening here. Jesus is ascending. And as he ascends, and we'll see in a couple chapters through the Holy Spirit, his power and authority is given to his followers, his disciples, to continue his ministry on earth. And this is confirmed in verses 4 to 5. 
In verses four to five, Jesus tells his followers to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful parallels here. In the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is baptized, commissioned for his earthly ministry. And now here in the book of Acts, the church, his followers are baptized to continue Jesus' earthly ministry, to start his ministry that would continue on earth. And what that means is that if you are a follower of Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are commissioned. You are called to continue the earthly ministry of Jesus in this world, in your sphere, your call, your commission. You have purpose. And, and this couldn't be any more relevant in an age, in a culture, where we hear a lot of follow your passions, follow your dreams. In fact, if you go to many commencement ceremonies, you'll, you'll hear the commencement speaker say to these young grads, follow your dreams, be true to yourself. Follow your passions. And the problem with that vision of life is that it starts with self and it ends with self. Jesus calls you and commissions you to a purpose, and that is to, to continue his earthly ministry. Now, you may hear that and say, well, if I'm called and commissioned, do I need to leave my job? and go into the ministry, in a church, or go on the mission field. I mean, if I'm really gonna answer this call and commission, right, that Jesus lays on me when I put my trust in him, then I must have to just leave my day job and just go into ministry and go into missions. And the answer is no. I mean, maybe, but no, not necessarily. The calling and the commissioning of Jesus through his Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily change what you do. It changes how you do what you do. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is speaking to this church where people are coming to Christ left and right from all kinds of vocational backgrounds, marriage situations, social status. They're coming to Christ and they're asking the question, wow, now that I'm in Christ and I'm called and commissioned, do I need to leave my marriage because my spouse isn't a believer? Or do I need to leave my job? And, and do something really for the kingdom and become a missionary like you, Paul? Right? Or do I need to change my social status? And Paul says, no. No, in fact, he says this in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul is using the word calling here as he uses in other places. He's using the word calling here not to talk about church ministries and not to talk about missionaries, but to talk about regular secular jobs that people find themselves in after they come to Christ. And he says, you are called and assigned to that place. Doesn't change necessarily what you do, but how you do what you do. When we talk about jobs, we use the word vocation. Oftentimes we don't understand what vocation means. The, the Latin root of that word is vocari. It means to call. A job is only a calling if some other party or some other person calls you to do it. And 
if you do it for their sake and not your own. So when you understand your job, 40 plus hours a week, whatever it is, when you understand it as a vocation and a calling, suddenly now what you do for 40 plus hours a week is no longer for self-fulfillment. It's no longer to fulfill your dreams. It's, it's a calling that you do it now for the sake of Jesus to serve others, not as a means to self-fulfillment. Here's the question. What would change if you began to view your job as a vocation, as a calling from God, commissioned by God? Or maybe another way to ask it is this. How does the way you work testify to the risen and ascended Christ? The ascension of Jesus produces a new community that gathers around a person, whether it's Sunday morning or in a home for community group. The ascension of Jesus produces a new power. It's not political power. It's not earthly power. It's a heavenly power, Holy Spirit power that comes through those that are simply faithful witnesses to testify not just by words, but by how you do your work, how you spend your money, your entire life, your identity, is a sign that testifies to a risen and ascended Christ. And the ascension of Jesus produces new purpose. Right where you're at, right where you're working, instead of working for yourself or some other motive, it begins to be a calling in which you are working for Christ, for his glory, and working to serve others around you. Let's pray. Father, it gives us great hope as we live in a world that's so broken, in a world where we're dealing with a pandemic and a recent resurgence. It gives us great hope to know that your son is ascended on the throne. That he's all-powerful and that his work continues here on earth through his followers, through us, through his church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, would you renew, recast our vision to see our lives in light of how you see them and what you've called us to. That when we gather on a Sunday morning, when we gather in community groups, that it wouldn't just be around a, a set of principles or or. or, or tips and tricks on how to live life, that we would gather around a person and find excitement as we gather around you, Jesus. Longing for the day when you aren't unseen, but you're seen when you return. Oh, Father, would you, in all the various vocations in this place that are represented, would you, by your Holy Spirit, work powerfully through us as faithful witnesses in the marketplace where we're at, to testify by words when you give us those opportunities, by our actions, how we treat people, that, that our lives would be a, a signpost that says Christ is alive. Father, as we continue to worship, would we sing as witnesses who are singing to you, Jesus, on the throne?
We pray this all in your name. Amen.